President Obama is proposing an expansion to overtime that would more than double the pay threshold for 100,000 professional and salaried Hoosiers, who the Obama administration says have been left out without fair compensation in the face of inflation. Advocates for the president's proposal say it would mean raises for 5 million American workers, but businesses and unions argue it could threaten jobs. I'm Joe Wren, in for Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with employment and labor experts about the reasoning behind the president's proposal and what it means for Americans. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. President Obama last week announced a proposal that would change the national standard for overtime pay. The proposed changes would affect 5 million million Americans, including 100,000 Hoosiers. Businesses and labor unions say the proposal could threaten jobs, but advocates for it argue it would effectively mean raises for millions of workers who have left behind in the face of inflation. Today on Noon Edition, we'll discuss this proposal and what it could mean for Indiana. I'm Joe Wren for WFIU, WTIU News, alongside Mary Catherine Carmichael. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bob Zaltzberg is off today. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. We have a couple guests with us today as well. Lisa Amsler is a professor in the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And Chris Schrader is a human resources professional. Thanks for you two for being on the show today. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. They've both joined us before, and we've had very lively discussions in the past, so I think we'll do that again today. I hope so. I, I kind of wanted to start with just the, the current, let's go back a little bit with the current overtime law, and maybe, Chris, you can start and help us out with that. What does it say, and when was that created? Sure. Well, the, the current rule that we have in effect was uh, updated in 2004, so that was the last time that this was seriously looked at. And that was when the present salary floor that uh, we have today uh, of four hundred fifty-five uh, dollars per week, or, or roughly the the um, the twenty twenty-four six that people have to get paid, was set. And at that time, the two big things that were done uh, were the elimination of what was called the long test, because there are really three prongs to a salaried position, right? You First, you have the salary basis test, which means you have to be paid the same amount every single time without difference, and it doesn't take into account your productivity or what's, uh, uh, how many hours you work or anything like that. So it's salary basis. Then another test you have to meet, which is are you paid at least this amount, right? And that's what we're discussing, this mm-hmm. proposed rule of determining what that amount is. And then the last one is what's called the duties test. So the work you actually perform, does it rise to the level of an exempt role? And in order for a role to be exempt, you have to hit all three of those prongs. So the proposed rules here made no proposal to affect salary basis and really made no proposal to affect rules. 
it is solely on this uh, idea of the uh, salary floor. Now, the salary floor historically uh, has moved very, very slowly. And it's never been associated with inflation rate, which is one of the things that's being proposed in this rule. The only time inflation was ever taken into consideration relative to that salary floor was in 1975 when we had raging inflation. And so they raised it, which was only supposed to be the, for the year of 1975. And so naturally, they kept it going all mm-hmm. the way till 2004, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really go in reverse. Um, but that salary floor itself has never really been focused on anything other than a percentage objective of total exemptions. And historically, the approach has been we have to keep it low enough so that small businesses are not impacted and lower cost of living states in the nation are not heavily impacted, right? So. It was always low enough so that it wouldn't kill Mississippi and be very easy for New York City to meet, Mm. right? Do you Mm -hmm. understand? So Mm -hmm. that's why that amount has stayed so low, Mm. not because the government wants people to be paid poorly. It understands it is a huge country with great disparities Mm -hmm. in cost of living Mm -hmm. and types of industries in those geographic areas. So what's that number? Give us something to... Right. So currently, it's a minimum of $455 per week and $23,600 per year. So that's the current floor. So whether you work in New York City or Biloxi, Mississippi, if you are exempt, you have to be paid that minimum amount. Okay. Right. <clears throat> you have to be paid that minimum amount. And then, <clears throat> pardon me, if you are making over $455 a week and you are considered a professional and you have duties that match up with the definition of a di- of a professional, then your employer is not required to, to pay, pay you, you overtime. overtime. That is absolutely correct. Okay. And then if you make less than 400 I just want to make sure we're all clear right. on this. If you make less than $455 a week, your duties are not necessarily considered to be professional of in nature and or the duties you perform at your place of employment um, do not um, qualify as quote-unquote professional, then you qualify for overtime. That's correct. But actually to articulate that, if if your duties did rise to the level of exempt, but you weren't paid enough, you would have to be paid hourly. So that's the point of the test. You have to meet all three prongs. You fail on any prong, the person is eligible for overtime. Now, because you're a human resource professional, you used exempt and non-exempt. Let's define that's those just for everybody. That's correct. Yeah, Hourly or salary is how most people talk about it. Uh, attorneys and HR professionals say exempt and non-exempt because they're referring to whether you're exempt or non-exempt relative to the overtime provisions of the act. Right. So, so let's talk about that, what makes someone a professional. And maybe, Lisa, if you want to jump in here, too, yeah. what is that definition? Well, there there are actually three categories <clears throat> that we're talking about in the, in the exempt uh, language. We're talking about executive, administrative, and professional. The professional one is actually the least controversial because we're talking about teachers, doctors, lawyers, people who've uh, had a prolonged period of training and education that the vast majority of employees don't have. But the, the more difficult exemptions are the executive and administrative exemptions. Uh, and the executive exemption is someone who's expected to supervise, to manage a business, and to supervise at least 
two full-time employees or the equivalent thereof. So if you have part-time employees, it adds up to two full-time equivalents. Um, the administrative employees are doing white-collar work. But uh, in each case, we've got definitions. I mean, apart from the salary floor, um, the definitions are, are, are pretty different from what's happening in the real world. So for example, an executive employee, uh, their most important principal duty has to be uh, something that involves managing the enterprise managing a customarily recognized department or subdivision of the enterprise, in addition to directing the work of these two employees. And they must have the authority to hire and fire other employees or to effectively recommend hiring, firing, advancement, or promotion. And when you think of most people, I mean, back in the old days, I, when I was a student, I worked in Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm -hmm. And my then boyfriend got the management job, even though I was the one who brought us there, right, to get jobs to <laughs> yeah. begin with. Um, and he ended up being paid a lower hourly rate than I was because he was paid on salary and he was working more hours. But we're talking about running the fry later at Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? Um, so the administrative employee exemption, the definition of duties, it, and this is the short definition. There used to be a longer definition, but part of the 2004 changes were to simplify the de the definition on the theory that the floor would create that salary level of uh, 455 would create a bright line rule that would make it easier for for human resource managers to administer. Uh, but the duties definition, this is someone whose primary duty includes the exercise of discretion and independent judgment with respect to matters of significance. Now, think about it. This is supposed to be the principal main or major or most important duty that an administrative employee performs. Would you repeat that again, please? Sure. It's they must, their primary duty includes the exercise of discretion and independent judgment with respect to matters of no significance. significance. So the problem that, that the Department of Labor has identified here, and you, you're, I can tell from your expressions <laughs> you're already seeing it, right, yeah. <laughs> is that we have millions of people who are being paid as exempt employees who do not meet the qualifications of the regulations. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, the Department of Labor is estimating that approximately 85% oh, of the employees who are white-collar employees uh, and exempt would fail the duties test if anyone had time to enforce it. Now, that's the other problem, is think you're an employee. You know you really shouldn't be exempt. You know you shouldn't be working 70 hours a week for a salary that is actually below the poverty level for a family of four. But what are you going to do in this employment environment, right? If you challenge, you get fired. Um, most employers, many employers uh, in the country, have adopted uh, a new provision in their personnel manual for mandatory adhesive arbitration, which means that if you challenge something, instead of going to court, you have to go to binding arbitration. And if you lose, you may end up paying the fees. <laughs> and you can imagine this has intentionally a very suppressed deterrent. Yes, very much a deterrent. A lot of litigation. Mm -hmm. yeah. when, were the, when was this stuff written? Because this seems so 
unnecessarily awkward and almost um, like what you know. Well, the Joe and I are looking at each other. 2004. Mm-hmm. That's actually a lot better than we had before. before that. That's actually improved. That's updated. That that's an improvement. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So small wonder that businesses struggle with it. Right. Right. Chris, uh, we'll get to you. I, I do want to have open the discussion up to our uh, 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 listeners out there. 812-855-0811, toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also join us live, chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We're also on uh, Twitter at Noon Edition. Go ahead, Chris. What were you saying? Right. Uh, I was going to react to the to the prior statement, which I think was an accurate representation of what the the government alleges is happening. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that there are people misclassified. In in my practice as a sure. consultant, I run into it all the time, and it's typically not because the business is deliberately trying to misclassify. Neither they nor the people working on it completely fully understand what it is. You also have to understand that there is a massive drive from the employee themselves to become exempt. And here's Mm -hmm. why. Flexibility. Mm -hmm. If you are an exempt worker and you need to take a few days off at the end of the day or in the middle of the day to go see a play, to go to the dentist, to take your child here or there, you say, I'm leaving. And you go. And it doesn't come out of your sick leave and doesn't come out of your vacation leave and nothing really has to be scheduled because when you're exempt, you're paid for what you do, not by the clock. So if you are a Generation Y or you are a Generation X person who's been tethered to smartphone and used to doing everything right in front of them, does that sound kind of attractive? Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So they go to their boss and say, listen, I don't care about this overtime stuff. I want to be bound by the clock. I'll be bound by what I do. Employer says, okay. Well, the duties test isn't met there. I mean, I completely agree with the, with that statement. But by and large, work has changed a lot relative to the concept of matter of significance. I would tell you, if you are a two years out of college individual signed as an account executive to two or three accounts worth a couple million dollars to the corporation, and you're responsible for the management of that relationship, keeping them happy, I would say that's pretty darn significant. I don't know that the government would, but I can tell you as a business person, Mm -hmm. that's darn significant. Mm Let's uh, maybe now move ahead a little bit into this new proposal with, uh, that Obama came out with and talk about the changes. What changes does, does he want to make and what are your thoughts on those, Lisa? Well, the primary change that has been proposed is instead of fixing a number in the regulation, which then becomes out of date within a matter of years as the economy shifts and wage rates shift, they are proposing, they are actually asking for feedback. I I think we need to explain what rulemaking is at this point because people may think this is legislation. This is what, what the Obama administration is proposing is a regulation. Under the original Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which was adopted during the Great Depression with the purpose of increasing employment by having employers spread it among more people, by creating a wage premium after 40 hours of time and a half, there's an economic incentive for the employer to hire somebody else. Some of the other purposes of the act had to do with the health 
uh, and general well-being and standard of living of workers, which is why this it's significant that the current salary rate is actually below the poverty level. So what that statute did in 1938 was it gave the Department of Labor the power to do rulemaking to define the exemptions. The statute doesn't define the exemptions. It just says mm -hmm. administrative, executive, and professional employees are exempt, and the Labor Department has the power to define these. So what we've been talking about is the history of changes in the definition through rulemaking. In this rulemaking, procedure, anybody who has a problem with this proposal, any employer, any employee, any union, anybody, any citizen, any taxpayer, can go on regulations.gov and um, we can provide you the link so you can get them there. And they can send comments to the agency about what the content of the rule is. The proposal here is to is only not to change the definition of duties. Correct. Um, and, and they want uh, feedback on this nature of changing work and the way people are working 24-7 with their electronic devices. But the rule is not about that. All they're doing is changing the floor. Now, their proposal is to either, one of two things, and they want feedback from us, either tie it to the 40th percentile, that is, the, somebody who's at least above 39% of other uh, employees uh, in salary, instead of having the flat rate. Now, that 40th percentile in 2013 would be $921 a week or $47,892 a year. By 2016, when this took effect, it would be $970 a week, $50,440 a year as mm -hmm. a salary. Um, one thing I think it's important to understand is all this floor does is say, if you're below the floor, you're eligible for overtime. Now, that doesn't mean that the employer has no choices. I mean, the employer could hire another employee to do the additional hours and not pay overtime. Um, the, the, uh, the employer could raise the salary above the threshold, and now the employee is exempt. The employer has other choices, uh, but that's the main bright line provision of the rule. Mm -hmm. And. I know you touched upon this, though. Uh, just curious, when you say it's a regulation and we're hearing about this, they're getting feedback right now, is there any type of time frame of this? Yeah, yeah normally this type of uh, rulemaking runs anywhere between 8 and 12 months in general Okay. because there's a, a whole process, right? So mm -hmm. after you announce it in the Federal Register, there's a comment period that is announced. In this particular case, that has been announced at 60 days. Mm -hmm which is less than last time around, but more than the minimum. And then once that 60 days passes, then the agency is responsible for reading through all of the public comment and determining whether or not that shapes their concept of the rule. Then it has to go out across the rest of the government for what's called intra-agency review. Then it comes back and then gets pushed out, which is why even moving at flank speed, which by and large, flank speed for a government is <laughs> usually quite some time. Um, that's why people keep on talking about this in terms of a final rule finally going into effect is 2016. We also have no insight as to what the phase-in schedule may be, right, mm -hmm. for, for when this is, may go up over time. You know, or they, they could just elect to 
go big, go big casino and push it all in. But it's going to take some time. And, and earliest we'd be looking at practical effects would be 2016. But I also want to say that the, the DOL has been working on this for over a year. And, and they have spoken to a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own professional organizations for Society for Human Resource Management has had multiple conversations with the Department of Labor. I myself had a brief opportunity to speak to the Secretary of Labor on my concerns around this. So they've been gathering a lot of information long before they put this proposal out. How'd your conversation with... Well... I don't think either one of us were quite satisfied is probably the best way to put it. Um, the, the context of our discussion was around uh, this is the Secretary of the Labor, Secretary of Labor Perez, yeah. It was actually around duties because, quite <clears throat> frankly, I was really anticipating changes to both. You hardly ever get a proposal. If you look at the history of the act, you hardly ever get a proposal just for the salary floor. They're usually also doing the duties mm-hmm. because something happened mm-hmm. in the change of the duties to drive that salary floor. That's usually part of the logic. So it's it's unusual to see just this component come out. Um, but as you heard mentioned, they have asked for public comment on rules themselves, which is not to say they couldn't come back and propose those too. Mm. Quite frankly, I expect them to do that. But right now, this is just it. But his discussion of mine really um, focused around the example he was using and his concern was uh, the dollar store arrangement. And, and dollar stores, like a, a lot of uh, lower tier, tier retail, uh, offer low-cost goods. Um, at their location, it's a dollar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so very straightforward. And uh, that puts really practical constraints on the products they will offer, and in particular, the labor costs they can afford to bear to offer those uh, prices to their uh, customers. And so they have two employees, a cashier who stands there and rings up the sale, and a manager who manages that employee but does everything else in the store. And he was really used as an example of that manager being taken advantage of. They had far more responsibilities than that cashier because obviously when the cashier went on break or had to go to the restroom, the manager did that too. Of course, anybody that's ever worked in an enterprise knows that any job that isn't getting done is the manager's job, Mm -hmm. which was the comment I made. But um, he just thought that was really unfair. This person had to work all these hours, had all this responsibility, and still had to sweep the floors and put product on shelf and solve customer problems and said, you know, they should be making a lot more money and and should be compensated properly. And I said, well, they call the Dazzle store for a reason, not the $5 store. So that's really a decision to be made within the business enterprise, and the individual can choose to work where they choose. Mm-hmm. Dollar store didn't grab them off the street and force them into the role. So the manager then would be um, um, exempt under that? Uh, yes. In, okay, in that but I thought, I, had to have, I thought he had, you had to in charge of two You had to have two in a manager. So they're not exempt under the manager. They're at, not an executive. They're, they're not an executive. They're administrative. Oh, okay. They're administrative. Because right. so, okay. the, here's the key thing. The administrative exemption was the attempt by the government at the time to recognize the dynamic of the economy. We all know this now. The trend line of company size is smaller, not bigger. How many, when you look at businesses in Bloomington, even very successful ones, they have like 10 or 15 people. You see the pictures in the HT and it's five people sitting around a couple of computers at a desk. We know where this is headed. And the government understood that. And so they were trying to capture and recognize the fact that you might do things of a whole lot of significant, not manage a whole lot of people because there aren't a whole lot of people to be managed. Mm-hmm. So to, to put some of uh, this in perspective, because some small employers and companies may be panicking, um, the, uh, 
the estimation of impact is about 5 million total employees who, under this salary floor raise, would become eligible for uh, overtime. Of those, we, you already indicated 100,000 are in Indiana. That's about 2.2% of the total. But it's the total of 3.4% of the employees in Indiana. We're not talking mm -hmm. about a massive impact. And that's assuming that the employers decide not, not to pay overtime or, or to pay overtime, right? Uh, mm -hmm. they, it, the whole purpose of the Fair Labor Standards Act was in part uh, not only to improve the quality of life of employees, but to give employers a reason to hire a few more. Mm -hmm. And we've been having this problem with the economy since 2008. And while the unemployment rate has gone down, lots of folks are pointing out that that's because other people are giving up. They're, they're leaving the workforce. They're, we've had a spike in people applying for uh, Social Security disability. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 90,000 a month. Oh my gosh. Well, we have lots more to get to, and of course, we'd love to hear from you. We are discussing the proposed expansion of overtime that would affect 5 million Americans. What do you think of the president's proposal? Share your comments by participating in our live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. You can tweet us at Noon Edition. And don't forget, you can go ahead and call us as well as 812-855-0811 or toll-free 877 285 9348. We'll take a break. We'll be right back on WFIU. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at WFIUNews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition on WFIU. Today we are discussing the proposed expansion of overtime that would affect 5 million viewers, and we'd, we'd love to know what you think of the president's proposal. Here are the numbers again, 855-0811. Uh, I'm sorry, i got to give the area code. 812 That's right, you got to follow the new rule, Joe. Hey, uh, well, we are back. We're joined in the studio by uh, Lisa Bloomgren Amsler, a professor at the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Chris Schrader, who is a human resources professional. Uh, and during the break, we were alluding a little bit to uh, less the short-term impact of, of this topic and more the long-term effect on uh, Gen Xers. Uh, Chris, what were you, it was great 
Yeah, the point I was I was going to make is that um, when you think about the typical progression of an individual moving through an enterprise up up through steps of greater accountability. Um, Businesses, of course, are are taking risk every inch of the way. Right, I'm going to pay this person. I'm going to get these outputs, and so the lower the cost, the greater the risk that you can take. So your people new into mm-hmm. positions will be paid a lower wage because the the cost of being wrong is relatively low. Mm-hmm. Of course, it gets a lot higher as you move up. Right, they don't have much invested in you. Exactly. At that point. When you uh, imagine this, see this as a ladder as it sits today. And you think of those three-pronged tests I need to meet. The current salaries test sits at 23000 and and So I can't really meet that as, as an employer to someone to give them an opportunity to move ahead and put them in a role that might be a stretch. But if I'm wrong, it's not terrible. Well, think about climbing a ladder. What this does is saw off the first four rungs and make you jump. Because mm-hmm. now, in order to meet this test, I don't have to pay you the lower amount. I have to pay you 50440 right off the bat. You're asking me to take giant risk. And do how many people take giant risks on young people in businesses? Not really proven yet. You know, you like your odds. You think they're pretty promising. Do you really write that check? And we'll see, right? We'll see. But I can see how a lot of people would say, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. Yeah, so point-counterpoint here. You don't have to pay that money. You just have to pay them hourly instead. You can pay them the exact same amount you've been paying them. You can take the risk at that low wage rate on an hourly basis, have them work for you 40 hours a week, and not pay overtime because you're not working over 40 hours a week. Maybe they get, if you need them and you... uh, need them for a Saturday, then you pay overtime. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that this is a mandate. It's a choice. And the question is, why do we need to change the nature of the choices that employers are making? And the data suggest we have extreme and worsening income inequality. The salaries of CEOs at the top of these businesses is off the charts compared to the number of multiples they used to be mm-hmm. of the low-wage workers. I don't disagree, but typically this act has never been focused on those elements. It's never been focused on poverty levels or – I'm not saying those aren't material. I'm just saying the history of the act hasn't typically taken those things into account. And I think it's germane to bring that up because that's what's actually a key element of these proposed rules here, to try to lash it to CPI for the first time ever, to try to close these gaps, the references to poverty levels and things like that. That has never been in the thinking and the logic of the act before. And I'm not saying it's inappropriate. I'm just saying it's never been there before. I, I the, couldn't the, disagree the, more. The other thing I would say is that uh, I completely agree with you that it's choice. And, and we have no disagreement there whatsoever. I'll flip it around and put it on the employee's side. And what the, getting back to what employees prize most about exempt status is flexibility and freedom. If I pay them the lower rate, I have to compensate them as hourly. So now you come to me and you say, I want that time off. Well, I don't know. Do you have enough time in the PTO bank for that? And uh, you're going to have to punch the clock on that thing. 
And we're going to have to count for all those hours. Now, we can do this very simply now, right? Because we have technology for that. We, we can actually, that's not as laborious as it used to be, right? That used to be a real pain in the neck. But that worker, that worker feels devalued. I, I don't, I, I, I understand what the, what the proposal rule is here, but I'll tell you right now, when, when you look at especially college students, I can't tell you how many conversations I had in HR professional with a college student who was in a role and I said, this is how we're going to compensate you and it's hourly because I actually did comply with the act in my businesses. And they said, I can't be hourly. I'm a, I have a college degree. I have to be exempt. So you've got this clash of expectation running up against Well, that is historically – I mean, that's historic in our nation. That's just how things have always been, or at least that's kind of the mindset that right. if you're a professional, you're automatically yeah. exempt. So I completely agree with the – And I, I use the term professional loosely, right. not in the – So I completely agree with the forces that are bearing down on this. I, I, I completely agree with my colleague on that. That's, the, that, that's all correct. But what I'm saying is that there are you, – you have two sides of this equation where the demand – on the employer side also has expe uh, expectations on the supply side, which is where the employees are. All right, counterpoint, let's have yeah. it. <laughs> Counter counterpoint is um, if we look at the state-by-state -state breakdowns of workers affected, mm -hmm. most, the largest age bracket is age 25 to 34. Mm -hmm. um, these are the people who've been dealing with the worst problems getting a job to begin with. Correct. So. Let's let's look at it from the other perspective. You're being paid this twenty three six sixty number a year as a salary. You're being told you're exempt. You're being told you have to work seventy hours a week. That's the problem. So, so the the other thing I'll say is that, uh, and I've done numerous uh, studies on this within enterprises. I've been in two times. I have had to correct businesses that had misclassified employees and therefore compensated them wrong and had them designed wrong and had to migrate them from salary to hourly. Um, and in all of those instances without fail, in doing that, the, the employee said, this is going to cost the company a fortune because I'm working 60, 70 hours. This is, this is not going to be tenable. And in the run-up to all of these, in getting the correction in place, I started tracking time before I ever threw the switch on the money. The overestimation of time worked was appalling. And when it was all said and done, the average was 37. In reality, we demanded more of them after they punched the clock, not less. Now, that is not a broad form study. Those are experiences I directly had, but I can tell you that people's perception of how long they work and how they actually do work are out of whack. I can see how it is really hard to track how much you work because sometimes now it's in five and 10 minute snippets where right. you're having an email exchange or a text exchange with a colleague over the phone. And so technically your time is devoted to work at that moment, but it's not something that you um, easily track. You know, okay, here's 10 minutes here, here's 15 minutes here, that sort of thing. If you have handheld technology, you feel slave to it and put upon every minute it is in your hand. Yeah. 
It's, it's interesting that uh, your example suggests that it's actually in the employer's interest to track time, which means because if, if, be. they're, if they're claiming to work more hours than in fact they're working, mm -hmm. then that improves your ability to supervise employment. Oh, I, I said that they thought they worked more. I didn't say that they were. So it, it, didn't, it didn't have any real... Um, didn't have the exact impact on the productivity itself. Let me put it this way. Um, it's entirely possible to be at work and not doing something productive, correct? So when you get back to Mary Catherine's uh, um, uh, statement that you, you work in snippets, you work in time. So mm -hmm. people do, I have no doubt that people feel more strongly attached to work and in and are unable to escape it in a material way than prior generations. When my dad went to work and came home, he was home. I can't ever remember the boss calling. There was no way for him to figure out what was going at the office. No email, no text, no anything. He was totally in his own space. He was relieved of work. Um, I'm not sure the last two generations have any concept of, of what that is. So I completely understand the belief and the, and the understanding that it feels like I'm working 60, 70 hours a week. Some really, really are, and that's absolutely true, and others feel like it. Let me go ahead and give the phone numbers, and we do, we do have Daniel on the line. We'll get to you in just a second, 812-855-0811, toll-free at 877-285-9348. Uh, call in for the discussion. We still have about 15 minutes left. Daniel, hello. This is Joe. You are live on Noon Edition. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to inject a little bit of the experience with software engineer in a professional one's discussion because I'm not hearing it. I'm hearing lots of comments that suggest that, you know, employees have way more power um, in the labor market than they actually do. I'm hearing a lot of, you know, from the perspective of business owners and how this is going to affect business owners and, you know, oh, if the employee... Um, doesn't want to work X hours, they can just move on. Well, I work in an industry that is that is really heavily as tilted towards labor as you can get without being unionized right now. There's a vast shortage of software engineers. It's a highly respected profession, and we still don't have that much negotiating power. It isn't easy to just move on. It isn't easy to negotiate for proper compensation, and there is a culture that drives you to work really, really hard. Mm -hmm. I work anywhere from 50 to 70 hours a oh, week, yeah. typically. And there's a culture that drives that, and you can't really escape it. It's also a creative profession, which means that you can't tie it to the clock. When I clock out at the end of the day, I don't stop working. You can't. You're always thinking about it. Yep. And measuring that hourly just doesn't make sense. Then, I also wanted to comment about how, you know, I don't know what the intention of the law when it was was written was, but the intention of the movement that brought about the law originally was to bring about a 40-hour work week and to make it so that people didn't spend their whole lives working anymore. So I just wanted to hear, add that into the conversation and hear um, commentary on it from both. Yeah, my, my son is in a, a similar field and um, everything you've said is true from my personal experience uh, with him. Yeah, uh, the history of the act uh, isn't just about 40 hours so that people are able to have more of a life. It also has to do with unfair competition in commerce. In other words, this is language right out of congressional findings in 1938. The notion that industries engaged in commerce, the production of goods in commerce, 
there, there's the existence of labor conditions detrimental to the maintenance of the minimum standard of living necessary for health, efficiency, and the general well-being of workers, which means actually from its origin, this law was about poverty. It wasn't simply about the number of hours. Uh, and in the position you describe, you're an exempt worker. There's a special provision uh, that was added to the statute uh, and the regulations about employees in the computer industry because the working conditions were new and different. Mm -hmm. And Chris may want to add more to that. No, I, I, I agree. The, um, uh, I, I especially appreciate the comment you made that um, while s certain circumstances would exist in your industry, if one thing is true, why is the other not? So if I have a skill that is in high demand, and uh, last I saw, I've not seen anybody sitting on the street with a sign around their neck that says, I will code for food, right? So mm -hmm. th th clearly there's a scarcity mm -hmm. of the supply for this. So under normal circumstances, you should indeed have leverage. Now, from my standpoint, where the leverage comes from is the higher economic growth and the proliferation of companies chasing the same labor. Part of the challenges you're in right now, I believe, is that there is just enough labor, just enough to maintain a rough equilibrium. Mm -hmm. The other thing that has changed is that the requirement for businesses to warehouse and hold onto in the form of traditional employment, large numbers of employees, has faded. So within my own practice, I work with a number of companies who don't have HR at the caliber of strategic capability that I can deliver. They don't go out and hire somebody for that. They have me come in, make a solution, and go, because what they like about me is that I go away. <laughs> right? So my cost goes with it. And so we've had uh, – uh, I think it gets back to it again. We've got a remarkably dynamic global economy with more forces at play, moving at such a rapid speed, it's very difficult to put policy around that and have it quite have the effect that you intend. And I think this is one of the reasons why they're moving the salary forward, please, because it's a one lever that you can pull mm. to, to try to get a, a significant movement in one spot. 877-285-9348. Join the discussion. Um, we have... Lisa Amsler, professor of the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs with us, and you're also hearing Chris Schrader, a human resources professional. Can you maybe touch briefly on whether or not um, the, any new overtime laws could affect uh, or stifle career advancement? Uh, it's, it's interesting to talk about career ladders, as Chris did, because there are changes in the nature of commitment to a given employer. The modern workforce, uh, we're, we're teaching students that they may, they may be looking at changing careers three or four times mm -hmm. in their lifetime. And, uh, and new employees, this incoming generation, is uh, not assuming that it has to commit its lifetime mm -hmm. to a given employer. Mm -hmm. This is not you know, mm -hmm. the commitment to the institution that was uh, lauded about ja the Japanese workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, because w we have labor moving, being outsourced, being moved from country to country. So this, this question of a career ladder, I think, is evolving. I think we're we've got employees thinking of themselves more in 
terms of their self-image, their profession, even though it might not qualify as a professional employee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I don't actually use the term ladder with uh, my students when I talk. I was really talking in in standpoint of trying to equate a scale of dollars in an upward motion. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. I was really economic in that regard. Uh, How I actually describe it to my students, though, today, I don't don't believe career ladders in the sense that their parents might talk about them exist any longer. Uh, I'm more on the line of Peter Drucker. Uh, that says uh, it's more long lines of swinging vines. You pick the one you grab and you bring your own machete. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Chris, we've had somebody uh, on our Twitter feed respond to your dollar store uh, comment. And our, <clears throat> pardon me, the response is not true that dollar store managers have choice to work there. Small towns have small markets and few job choices. Right. Well, my response to that is not along the lines that, of course, opportunity is, is a matter of geography and where you are. Right. Sure. And and so uh, you need both to come online. Obviously, you're, if you are in an area in which there are few opportunities, your opportunity is going to be constrained. Also, mm-hmm. my reference point to the f- was to the fact that in the United States we operate under the at-will doctrine of employment, which means you come to work for me under term and conditions we agree upon, and I can release you at any point, at any time, good, bad, or indifferent, so long as I do not violate your civil rights or other public law, and you can do the same to me. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh. And and the problem is that when we're talking about the Fair Labor Standards Act as a public law, the way the regulations are currently written, the nature of the changing employment relationship with employers imposing adhesive arbitration on employees as a condition of hiring them means that we cannot effectively enforce the law we have, which means that at-will employment is not an even playing Mm -hmm. field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the the adhesive because I've heard about that before. Is that more prominent in the public sector than the private? Because I've not seen tons of it in the private yet. Uh, it's it's in about 30% one study done a decade ago mm-hmm. by a professor at Stanford Law School mm-hmm. who is also uh, an, a social scientist, yeah. Deb Hensler. 30% of all the economic relationships the average person enters into have attached to them an adhesive arbitration clause that includes consumer transactions, employment transactions. Mm. And we don't we don't have enough data about this, right. but the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote repeatedly for the last decade, five Republicans to four mm-hmm. m- more left-leaning appointees, have broadened uh, the ability of employers to adopt these clauses and enforce them. In fact, they've effectively eliminated the ability of consumers and employees to join class actions right. involving these employers. And mm-hmm. so this question of, you know, in a situation like this where you can't enforce public law, Mm -hmm. this is a nice bright line. Now, it may be the wrong line, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of having a 40th percentile line across the whole country, what you should do and I should do if we don't agree with it is submit comments to the Department of Labor and say, listen, there are different standards of living across the country. Mm -hmm. We know this. We've got data on it. Peg it to the local percentile. Right. Uh, she, uh, a good point was made here that we haven't made before, and that was the term bright line. Believe it or not, the whole point of this uh, uh, provision is to provide clarity to the employers mm-hmm. to know what they have to hit. 
I just want to make sure I thank Daniel earlier for calling from Bloomington. We do have another call from Terre Haute. Don, are you there? You're live on Noon Edition. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, I just wanted to ask, I'm, I'm always wary once uh, there's additional regulation uh, that comes in. I'm an employee who's been negative, negatively affected by the Affordable Care Act and the number of hours that uh, I can get or that I can schedule uh, based on that, so I remain uneligible for the medical benefits. So I'm just wondering, the unintended consequences uh, are always there, and I'm just wondering, I may, know you may have touched on some, but I've uh, tuned in a little late, uh, the, the unintended consequences, you know, it's well-intended for employers to get uh, a better, better uh, compensation structure, but what other unintended consequences might attach to this? Right. The the point I shared with the secretary when I had a brief moment to speak to him that I under I completely understood the intent and and I take at absolute good faith that what is intended here is a benefit to the nation. I don't gainsay the the motive at all, but I did tell him I thought that if if. If really what he expected to happen was more people being hired and more people being paid, those were probably the two least things to materialize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, an unintended consequence uh, could be more offshoring of work, for example. But the problem is a race to the bottom. You know, if, if all we care about uh, is competing with wage structures in the third world, then that's going to change the nature of the United States we know and love. Yeah. I, I think it's. Uh, uh, I think offshoring might happen. Although, quite frankly, China has become so unattractive from a cost standpoint for some time. That's why you've seen the large migration of manufacturing back to the U.S. They just aren't three hundred person or, or sorry, three thousand person plants. They're three hundred person plants with advanced manufacturing and robots. And what we're going to see here, uh, I believe, and what I've been telling my clients, what I've been telling my students, uh, you're going to see broad form implementation of artificial intelligence coming into an awful lot of jobs that are currently done by people. And the fact of the matter is, um, if you're a publicly traded company, you are responsible for reducing profits for your shareholders. And, and if you've got a big institutional uh, capital, uh, for, uh, capital uh, fund coming down to you, like CalPERS, California Public Employee Retirement System, they're trying to make sure a retired teacher gets their pension. So they want you to deliver results. Yeah, there's, a, there's one piece of what's changed that I think we've left out of this discussion, and that is the dramatic decline in unionism in the United mm -hmm. States from roughly 50% in the 1950s to under 7% of the workforce now. And one of the reasons the bright line uh, is being eyed as a solution is because in, in the days of active unionism, the collective bargaining agreement would have mm -hmm. uh, identified uh, and the, the hourly overtime categories of work and would have provided for effectively private negotiated regulation of the workplace in terms of wages and hours. Only 7% of the workforce is bargaining unit now. Yes. Uh, private. That's Private Government's sector. totally unionized for all intents and purposes, yeah, but the private. Government yeah. is about 33%. Yeah. Yeah. But private yeah. sector, and that's what most of the concerns articulated yeah, I meant federal, about. Yeah, I meant federal government, sorry. not can, State governments aren't all organized, yeah. Go ahead. Can we learn anything from, didn't California do something with their overtime? 
Uh, California ha- has a couple cities in California have passed minimum wages. I think that's what they were just minimum wages. About. Mm-hmm. They've, they've jacked up minimum wages, but that has a direct impact on yeah. overtime, right? Because it's time and a half, whatever right. that numbers. But uh, but I want a very good point was made here that I want to emphasize that we haven't been talking. We about. have one minute. Very good. Saying it. If you make more people non-exempt, you make them eligible for union organization. So if you take 40% of the people who are currently exempt and make them non-exempt, they are eligible for organization under the National Labor Relations Act. Well, Final they word. Eli- they may be eligible to organize regardless of that. I mean, uh, faculty organize at some universities. But uh, the, I guess my concern is look at the big picture, right? We're talking about what's the playing, do we have an even playing field Mm -hmm. in employment? That's a great way to end it. Thank you very much for being here today. That's all the time that we have. I want to thank our guest, Lisa Amsler and Chris Schrader, for joining us. For my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Alexander McCall, and engineer Mike Pascash. Drew Dodlin is in there as well. Thank you, Drew. I'm Joe Wren. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.